Hi, my name is Jens. And my name is Kylie. You're listening to World Class Podcast. The usual take on it is that we apparently have so few universal values out in the international society, and that obviously seems to be bad news for humanitarian intervention. Because how can we have humanitarian intervention, which have to be has to be agreed upon? How can we have that when we do not have universal values, or only a few universal values? That was Tony Brems Knudsen. He is a political scientist at Aarhus University. He's researching in international affairs, more concretely in international conflict and humanitarian intervention. You're going to learn a lot more about these topics later on because we had an interview with him. Mm -hmm. Today, we'll be talking about universal values and questioning whether or not we share some in the world, if we all have a certain kind of code of conduct that we can agree on. We'll also be talking about humanitarian intervention which is, again, sort of what we talk with Tony about later on in the show. And it's a bit of a concept called subaltern realism, which is another theory regarding international relations. That's true. Uh, if you're a faithful listener, you listen to our first program uh, where we talk about realism and three other international relations theories. Subaltern realism is kind of an addition to these four theories. Um, and as the name might suggest, it's quite different in a way. Yeah, it's, it, it's an underdog. It's an underdog. I would say. Mm -hmm. In the world of... Um, in the world of international <laughs> politics. Yeah. And today is our last show of our first season. So subaltern realism kind of ties the knot mm -hmm. on our package that has been the first season, I guess. And we've gone over quite a few things. Like Jens said, we've gone over four theories of international relations. We've also talked about terrorism, uh, the rise of China and state capitalism, um, the pitfalls of aid and the, the good parts of aid. And with today, we're going to end it with uh, one of the most, uh, I guess, fluffy uh, topics uh, yet, values. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are values? Do you have values? I guess so. We all have values, right? There's um, always something that we have that's a sort of a standard. But for, do yeah. we share any values? That's the question of today. Across cultures and across different communities all over the world. Actually, does the whole world have any values in common? Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's r relevant when you talk about theories because how do you agree on a theory if you don't have the same values? Mm -hmm. It's relevant when you talk about institutions. How like do you have UN. an institution like the UN if you don't have any values in common, you know, to... To sort of base any action off of. Yeah. So I'm going to be talking about subaltern realism. It's an international relation theory put forward by Muhammad Ayyub in 2002 in his paper Inequality and Theorizing in International Relations, the case for subaltern realism. Um, it's very interesting because it is one of the few really well thought through alternative concepts of international relation theory that is not from the the first world, what you would call the first world, but actually like comes from the third world and from a third world uh, thinker. Mm -hmm. So uh, stay tuned for his thoughts. And I'll be discussing a an article called The Sunset of Humanitarian Intervention, written by Thomas Weiss, um, who is from, who works at the City University of New York, and who also is an expert on the United Nations. And 
this one is actually more of a, the case for humanitarian intervention and something also called the responsibility to protect, which is actually really interesting and it has provided the foundation for an, a lot of different humanitarian interventions since the 2000s. But Kylie, before we get to all this heavy theory, we have something lighthearted yes, we for do. our listeners. <laughs> we have a new word of the day jingle. And I think, well, actually, I don't know. I feel like maybe we've slowly gotten better or have we slowly gotten worse? I think it's a matter of perspective, actually. <laughs> like, I'm not sure. I, like, I'm obviously biased. I think we're great. And yeah, doing great of all course. The time. Yeah. But we have to admit that we didn't succeed on finding one jingle for the first season. No, we didn't. It has been the goal throughout this season to find one jingle that we can stick with. And I think this could be it. I'm ready. Beautiful. Yes. I loved it. So the academic word of today is sovereignty. Yes. Sorry, sometimes I mispronounce that, but it's... We practiced it before we went on air, but yeah. I think you did great. Sovereignty. Yeah. And the reason why I'm talking about sovereignty is because we are talking about intervention today, humanitarian intervention specifically. And when it comes to something like intervention, that assumes that it, it, it kind of yeah assumes that there's something intervening in a state from the outside so the concept of sovereignty oh my gosh so the concept of sovereignty will come up quite a bit basically sovereignty is the full right and power of a governing body over itself okay so basically that no one steps within your territory without you allowing them is that it? so in the terms of states it's the ability for a state to govern over its entire polity or they have supreme authority over their borders and everything that happens within them and their politics and their domestic policies and their foreign policies etc and one of the biggest it's obvious it's a principle that's been under it's it's sort of been debated over a long long time since like the age of enlightenment and actually even before that in medieval and classical times as well the concept of a state is always something that's been a little bit tricky to define. So people still debate the concept. But one of the things that is the most sort of foundational to sovereignty is that it has to be recognized by other people to have meaning. So the whole kind of foundation of sovereignty is based on legitimacy. So you can't just have a, you can't just, you know, a group of you declare a, sp a space of land so, I mean, you can use Palestine as an example. You know, they're, yeah. they're really struggling to be recognized internationally mm -hmm. um, so they can have sovereignty. Yeah. I actually went on Google Maps earlier today and I looked at it and on Google Maps it just says West Bank. Yeah. It doesn't say Palestine. Yeah. So, you know, Google Maps, I don't even think they want to step into that bee's nest that is yeah. <laughs> international politics. But Come on, Google. Yeah, step it up. Step <laughs> it in. Let's be activists. <laughs> um, and I think it's important today, especially because... Oftentimes within a sovereign state, you have many different ethnicities and many different minority groups, especially in today when there's so much migration and sort of multiculturalism going on. And so a key tricky part of sovereignty is recognizing a state and being whole as a state, but then also, you know, catering to your minority groups or your special interest groups or your different ethnic groups and welcoming them as, as part of your sovereign state. So All right. You got it? it well explained, I would say so. Okay, yeah, definitely. perfect. So let's talk about values. Do we have universal values that we can all agree on all over the world or do we not? Mm. It's a relevant question when we're talking about, um, for example, humanitarian intervention, like we're going to do in a bit, because 
if we are to intervene in a, in another country, we should have some reasons to do so. And these reasons are, you know, values that we have. Maybe you remember Kofi Annan. He was the Secretary General at the United Nations up until 2006. In 2004, he wrote a speech, and this speech is titled, Do We Still Have Universal Values? And he's probably the guy who who should be able to answer this question. Mm. So I read uh, this uh, speech, and uh, I think it's safe to say that if you ask Kofi Annan, the answer is yes. He is saying that values like peace and freedom and social progress, equal rights and human dignity are all values that everyone yeah. wants. Okay. You know, wants to achieve mm -hmm. and he's also saying that it's you know it's part of the united nations uh, charter these values which make them universal in a way um he's also saying that the universal declaration of human rights they kind of equal to this charter at the united nations mm. these two things are uh, more or less the same he's not saying they are the same but he's saying more or less and therefore everyone should be able to agree on the the human rights declaration so he's saying that those should also be universal values that everyone mm -hmm. shares um, he's making a few points. I just want to go over them really quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, you now have an idea about what universal values are. Mm -hmm. um, but some points he's making is that globalization uh, is calling us to agree on global values because we are getting increasingly interconnected. So if we don't have global values, it's going to make it really, really hard to cooperate or to coexist in this globalized world. Um, he's also making another point that after 9-11, we should not fall into the trap of uh, making, you know, a conflict that is the West against Islam, for example, and making it so polarized that we cannot agree on, on something. This speech was written in 2004, so that's probably why he's making this point, but I mm -hmm. think it's still relevant today. We still, you know, even if it's like 13 years after he wrote this speech, we still have this debate going on, Islam versus the West. Mm -hmm. And we have values that kind of transcend this uh, question. Mm -hmm. And he's just saying we should stick to these values and not forget them. Um, he's also uh, making another point, and I think that's relevant uh, for what we're going to talk about later. He's saying that values are not the same as policies. Mm. So we can have universal values, uh, and but that doesn't mean that we have universal policies. Human rights are nice to have and something we should strive for, but it's not policy. It's not something that needs to be there if it's not possible. He's saying that... Um, there is a degree of flexibility mm. when it comes to values. Okay, right. It's, we can agree on the values, but we should not... Not like enforce them. I think basically what he's saying between yeah. lines is that if you have a country that doesn't, uh, you know, adhere to human rights standards, yeah. there can be several reasons for it. Yeah, and I think it's great that we bring that up because when we're talking about this next article that I'm going to be discussing, it's sort of based on the assumption that we do have such a thing. Um as an agreed upon set of universal values and sort of standards for how we want ourselves and the rest of the states to act. So I'll be talking about, like I mentioned earlier, Thomas Weiss's article called The Sunset of Humanitarian Intervention and the Responsibility to Protect in a Unipolar Era. So he starts off this article basically by outlining the idea that in the 1990s we had a we had a decade of where humanitarian intervention was really prioritized by all states. It was just a really big momentum towards the agenda of human humanitarian intervention and it received quite a bit of debate actually later on because people some some countries were arguing a bit that 
humanitarian intervention was actually trumping the idea of sovereignty, which is the word I mentioned before. Yeah. So the idea that humanitarian intervention was sort of the priority of a lot of states was getting a lot of sort of pushback because some states were arguing that humanitarian intervention was trumping sovereignty in their states and that it almost was taking too much of a precedence. So this happened throughout the 90s. And then in 2001, there was a report published by the International Commission on Intervention and State Sovereignty called the Responsibility to Protect. So the idea of this responsibility to protect was sort of a new charter um, on humanitarian intervention and was sort of um, a new declaration that was written to change how humanitarian intervention was framed in the international world. And it was during, like we mentioned earlier, Kofi Annan's um, term at the UN um, when this report was released and also when there was a lot of debate surrounding sovereignty versus humanitarian intervention. So at the time, this was a very sort of, yeah, just heated yeah, heated hot, report hot and a hot topic. Yeah. And the responsibility to protect is a global political commitment, which was endorsed by a lot of members of the United Nations, or actually all members of the United Nations, to prevent um, genocide, war crimes, um, ethnic cleansing, and crimes against humanity. So kind of these four basic human rights violations. It also is sort of the enabling principle or declaration, which says that every state has an obligation to protect its civilians or its population. And if they fail to do so, the international community then has the obligation to step in and protect that state's um, citizens for them. Okay, so it's basically making uh, human rights a policy in a way, isn't it? It's kind of making human rights not necessarily a policy, but like an obligation and saying that if if certain states don't kind of step up and protect their citizens, then the international community has the legal ability to intervene. To intervene. And to protect the civilians for them. And so sometimes actually the responsibility to protect is a bit of a departure from hum humanitarian intervention as, you know, merely peacekeeping or aid missions because sometimes protection requires military presence. So under the responsibility of protect, foreign governments can actually come in with their military and have more of a prolonged military presence if they deem if the international community deems that that um, society needs that. So it's a bit heavier than sort of the typical humanitarian intervention that was popular or that was kind of a priority in the 1990s. So my author, Vice, um, looks at this report, this responsibility to protect report, and actually criticizes it and says that it's a good step in the right direction, but there's a couple of problems with it. In terms of the right direction, the good things that the report did is that it, it, it made the responsibility to protect a bit more robust than normal humanitarian intervention and that it also did reaffirm the notion of sovereignty. So it sort of addressed that issue of the debate saying, yes, there are sovereign states and we know that this is a, a sensitive issue, but we still have this obligation to step in. And it also apparently, I haven't read the whole report, but apparently the way that it was written really helped in shifting the attention away from the intervening states and towards the people that were suffering. And so it sort of prioritized not the intervention, but the actual suffering and violations that we needed to address as an international community. Okay. But he also says that there's a lot of shortcomings with it. So he said that this report was not actually as innovative as what we need in today's climate. So it was a good step in the right direction, but he says that it actually set the bar too high for what a just cause for an intervention was. For example, the only there's only two thresholds that people can step in for or that the international community can 
intervene on. And this is if there's a large scale loss of life, maybe with genocidal intent or not, or a large scale ethnic cleansing. So okay. kind of only two main big, big reasons when, when other states have the obligation to step in and protect citizens of a of another state. I think it's uh, it's it's interesting that you say this because uh, the recent uh, developments in Myanmar mm. um, could be argued to be a large scale uh, loss of life, right? Right, but it's also a bit. I mean, even in my opinion, it's a bit ambiguous, right? What that means? Um, large scale. Large scale, how and also, yeah, how many people does it take to? How many people have to die before it becomes a big enough deal? Right. Yeah. And also um, our uh, vice also argues a lot that this responsibility to protect paper actually falls short of the 1998 statute of the International Criminal Court or who released sort of some boundaries for just cause. And they had a way lower threshold for when you should step in. So they even said that crimes against humanity means everything from slavery to just general murder to imprisonment. So if you look at that statute, it's actually a much lower bar like much lower amount of crime that needs to happen until we step mm. in as an international community. So he argues that this is the bar is too high in this report and then it actually should be lowered because if if not there'll be a lot of things that happen that, that we don't been. have the obligation to step in and protect okay. these people for. So that's one of his big criticisms. So after he sort of criticizes this report Vice moves on to say, what does this mean for the future of humanitarian intervention and of um, the responsibility to protect? And he actually points this to the unipolar era, which is what is also in the title. And he argues that there is a sunset of humanitarian intervention, maybe because of reports like this that have you know their thresholds set too high, but mostly because of the fact that the United States is just as equal to the UN or probably even more powerful in terms of being the organization, in quotes, that um, leads or kind of assumes priority over humanitarian intervention. And this report was released in 2001. So actually it was just after 9-11 that they released it. And he argues in this article, Vice, that after this report was released, the U.S. has become preoccupied with the war on terror. So he says that as long as the U.S. is sort of distracted by things like this, that they're, they're actually... Gonna, they're not going to intervene. Well, they're, yeah, humanitarian intervention won't be at the top of their priority list. And in that way, the U.N. might have a really hard time kind of creating action and getting the world system to intervene in humanitarian crises because the U.S., whatever they're focused on, that's what the rest of the world is focused on, is essentially what he's saying. And so he actually said, there, like I said, there's a lack of humanitarian intervention since 2000, since the early 2000s, and that this is partly the fault of the U.S. Um, for not taking a, a bigger lead in this. And a lot of the reason why this was created was because of the a lot of failures in humanitarian intervention in the 1990s, like in Rwanda, for example. And so this author is really, he's really saying that this could happen again easily as long as we have this kind of lack of stress put on humanitarian intervention. And he also knows that there are problems, of course, and that humanitarian intervention and the responsibility to protect were kind of caught up in the war on terror in some ways even though the u.s justified the war on terror as an act of self-defense a lot of the rhetoric that was surrounding their intervention was also including this idea of humanitarian intervention in in, a, in afghanistan and in iraq to kind of raise the situation of like the living standards of people there mm. so for the future outlook yeah he just says that we need to focus on kind of strategic 
moments and, and when the U.S. and maybe other um, leading countries see a strategic opportunity to kind of combine maybe strategic goals with humanitarian intervention, that that's kind of be going to be where we see it the most, um, which I would say actually is probably a pretty accurate um, forecast when we're moving forward. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Kylie. Yeah, you're welcome. That was uh, very interesting. It is. And I think it, Ayub has a good counter to this. So I think I'm so too. To hear it. Yeah. So you could say Vice is pro intervention and he talks yeah. it up and he says we should do things to make it even easier to intervene mm-hmm. because otherwise we're going to leave people that need help um, helpless. Yeah, essentially. Um, a little bit later in this program, we're going to be talking with Tony Brams Knudsen, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and he's going to tell us a bit more about the Rohingya uh, situation in Myanmar mm. and why uh, humanitarian intervention has not happened there. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind when uh, thinking about what Kylie just told you and also when listening to what I say now. Uh, Mohammed Ayub, he talks about inequalities when you theorize in international relations. Mm. And he makes a new international relations theory that is subaltern realism. Uh, he's become kind of famous for this theory because a lot of international relations uh, scholars think that it is actually a good theory. Um, even Tony Brahms Knudsen that we're going to talk to, he believes in it. He thinks it's a, it's a good idea to make this theory and it is the most precise way that you can account for third world countries in the international system today. Um, so let's try and explain it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does subaltern mean? Um, it means those that are weak and inferior. So subaltern realism takes into account the weak and inferior states in the international system, which are not really thought of otherwise. Mm. If you listen to our first program, you know that realists, they think that states battle for power. So in the realist paradigm, all the weak and inferior states will just be losers because they don't have a lot of power. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have liberalism, it's, you know, participating in institutions and building institutions. And all the weak states, they have weak institutions. So again, they'll just be losers. Um, if you have international political economy, it's, you know, of course, having a big economy. The weak states, they have weak economies. So again, they'll just be losers. You have the superior states and you have the superior scientists. This is actually Ayub criticizing his fellow, um, you know, scientists, mm-hmm. friends from the West. He's saying... You all make great theories, but you reproduce knowledge in the West that kind of adds to this inequality because your point of departure is from within the West and you're looking at the world with Western glasses. Um, And how is this going to make, you know, the state building in, for example, Kenya? Uh, How is it going to explain that if it's just a guy from the West who talks about it? Now I mentioned state building. That's because one of uh, Ayub's central claims in this theory is that uh, countries in the third world, they're still struggling to build a effective state. And before you have an effective state, you can't really participate in, in big decisions in international relations. Mm-hmm. And all other international relations theory, they tend to forget this. They just assume that Kenya is Kenya. And then they, they look at Kenya's participation in things. They don't really incorporate into their theory the fact that Kenya is still trying to establish itself. Mm-hmm. Now mentioning Kenya, Kenya is actually one of the best developed countries in Africa. I could I could mention other countries that are worse off like uh, Sudan or, you know. So Ayub, he uh, draws on uh, classical realism, you know, the, the state as the main actor 
the state as the most important actor in international relations. But he says that in order to have a, a main actor that is the state, you have to build it first. So he also draws on historical sociology and uh, especially on how Europe was built. It took several hundred years, he argues, for the states uh, in, in Europe to uh, to develop. He also makes a point that a lot of scholars in Africa, they make that in Europe we have more homogeneous uh, cultural uh, um, entities. You, you have one ethnicity in Denmark, more or less, and another one in Norway, a third one in Holland. And in Africa, it's just not like this because the colonial masters of the past, they just drew, you know, with a ruler, they just drew lines irrespective of um, of ethnicities. So it's much harder to build a state in Africa mm-hmm. because there's so many, you know, disagreements mm-hmm. um, religiously, culturally, mm-hmm. and so on. Yeah. Uh, so he's saying that in order to understand why it takes a long time and in order to understand why uh, they have problems in Africa, you have to realize the importance and the struggle in building states. And then he's saying that in this ever-expanding international system where we have global values like the human rights, uh, which are in a way imposing um, you know, on, on states that are still being built, it makes it incredibly hard compared to the past when Europe was establishing itself. Because back in the days when uh, Germany went from being scattered regions to becoming a nation state, there was nothing like human rights. It was possible basically for the rulers to just kill off anyone, you know, disagreeing. Yeah. Yeah. And no one would like complain about it. It Mm. would be fine. It would be okay, you have to break some eggs to make an omelet and that's what we're doing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But in Africa, every time uh, there is uh, any persecution of uh, a violent uprising, all these international experts from the UN and other places are flown in and expecting Mm. everyone to keep up you They're know, kind of holding these states maybe to like a standard that yeah. is just maybe impossible. Too high. Yeah, or that's basically what he's saying. Yeah, okay. He's saying we should not allow genocides, but we should also allow states to establish themselves. And mm. establishing a state simply needs violence. Mm. Like he, he's, he's in a way cynical, but mm-hmm. I think in a way also realistic. Mm. He's saying you can't just build a peaceful, coherent state structure without combating all the forces trying to prohibit that from happening and you can't do that without violence i mean it's pretty um extreme i guess to hear if you've never heard something like that before (laughs) that we sort of need to allow a degree of violence yeah i think when it comes to that's one thing that uh, all the other international relations theory really don't don't talk about like they are all within the framework of Mm -hmm. uh, human rights Mm -hmm. and universal values Mm -hmm. Uh, but you, if you remember Kofi Annan, he said that there is a, a degree of... Uh, flexibility. flexibility. Or there should be, maybe. There should be, yeah. Mm. And I think uh, Ayub totally agrees with that. So, yeah, uh, basically, uh, he's saying that uh, Western countries, but also the UN and other international institutions, are prohibiting seriously weak states and building themselves. And then he goes on to talk about humanitarian intervention. His text is from 2002, so it kind of uh, feeds into the whole debate that was going on back then about uh, humanitarian intervention. And he makes the point that uh, a lot of third world countries, they think that humanitarian intervention is in a way superficial Mm. because they have seen double standards that countries that have intervened have, um, have had. So intervening in some conflicts and not in others makes third world countries feel like you never know if they are going to come and help you or not. Mm. Um, Furthermore, like I said, these values that uh, are the motivation to intervene, 
they think these values are externally uh, imposed and not really reflect their society. So they also, in a way, feel that humanitarian intervention is actually a way of trying to control these states, these fragile Almost states. Almost like a form of neo-colonialism or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, that's what it is. And uh, that's why they are opposing it. But he also makes the point that sometimes it it is wanted and sometimes it is needed. If you have a really clear case of uh, genocide, for example, uh, people will generally support it. Uh, but he still, he is a, a critic of humanitarian intervention. So I guess, yeah, both Ayub and Weiss are pointing to this idea that humanitarian intervention as a policy or as something that's prescribed by the UN or as something that's kind of propped up on this idea of universal values has through the through history been sort of hypocritical in some ways by picking and choosing who gets intervention and and when and and where and why and by who exactly and i think that's something that we will hear from in our interview exactly coming up here and i think that you know some of the hardest things to read about in the news or to hear about internationally are when there's people suffering and we look at bodies like the UN and we look at governments and we say, why aren't we doing anything? So up next, I hope that some of those questions will be answered and that maybe some of the stuff we just talked about um, can be applied as well. Yeah, I think it's important to uh, to have these theoretical um, frameworks. frameworks when you look at conflicts. And what we talked with Tony about was the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar. And many people don't understand why there hasn't been any international interventions, why there hasn't been any big scale help other than aid. But hopefully uh, Tony will be able to answer that. Mm -hmm. It's okay. Yeah. You want coffee or you just want to go ahead? Well, I, I could coffee. actually, I could actually drink a coffee. Yeah, yeah let's have a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> when you get started with the coffee, I will take a look at the questions. Okay, thank you so much, Tony, for the coffee and also for sitting down with us this morning. <laughs> yeah, in a nice cold day in Aarhus. Um, first of all, could you tell us a bit uh, more about your academic background? Yeah, well, I'm an associate professor here. I also got my PhD here at the Department of Political Science many years back in the 1990s. So I've been here as a student and as uh, a researcher and a teacher for many years. My subjects are the United Nations, humanitarian intervention, and uh, increasingly also great power relations and uh, the so-called new world order. So this week we've been talking about, as you said you've studied before, um, universal values and humanitarian intervention. So we were wondering what your opinion is on how universal values and humanitarian intervention operate together and overlap. Yeah, the usual take on it is that we apparently have so few universal values out in the international society, and that obviously seems to be bad news for humanitarian intervention, because how can we have humanitarian intervention, which have to be, has to be agreed upon, how can we have that when we do not have universal values or only a few universal values. But I think firstly that uh, genocide, crimes against humanity, and the most serious of war crimes, these are all things that most states, peoples, and individuals actually agree upon. Nobody likes genocide. Nobody likes uh, crimes against humanity. So there is at least a, a small area of agreement inside international humanitarian law uh, so there are still a few common values left, at least universally. But I also think that it's more complex than that 
uh, when you see the negotiation situation, for instance, in the UN headquarters, meaning here the UN Security Council, uh, because so many things come into play and must be taken into account. And some states, like often the West, it could be France, it could be the United States of America, they would look uh, very seriously at the human rights questions. Other states, like for instance states uh, in the third world, some also call it the global south, they would perhaps be preoccupied with consequences for the state building process and, and being worried about uh, mass atrocity crimes leading to national disorder. So um, various um, sets of interests and values may sometimes come together in favor of adequate interventionist measures so to stop the very ser most serious crimes against humanity. So there's still a lot of room for negotiation on a topic like humanitarian intervention or the principle behind it nowadays, which is the responsibility to protect. So uh, humanitarian intervention and uh, the responsibility to protect uh, principles are still uh, widely debated for the histories of effectiveness or lack thereof. Could you explain a few cases of where humanitarian intervention and the responsibility to protect was effective and where it was not? Yeah, and this is the hard question, <laughs> at least if you have any sympathy for this idea and this practice. And I think I'm not naive. Uh, this is hugely problematic uh, in many situations, but I do have some sympathy left because what would international society be without at least the possibility of preventing genocide? But it is hard to point to 100% cases of success. But I would like to point to the often mentioned one as where it all began, namely the intervention for the Kurds in northern Iraq in 1991. As some will recall, the situation was that we had had the Gulf War. Saddam Hussein, the president of Iraq, had occupied Kuwait, annexed it. Then there was this overwhelming coalition assembled. They got a, a UN Security Council mandate and Kuwait was liberated again after a short and quite violent war. But in the meantime, the Kurds considered a rebellion against Saddam Hussein. They had long been oppressed, sometimes exposed to very harsh treatment, including the use of chemical gas, burning and destruction of villages. And now they thought that after the defeat of Saddam Hussein, it might be the right time to rebel. They also had some encouragement by the West, including the President of the United States, George Bush, who advocated to the Kurds that they should rebel. At least indirectly he did so. But the rebellion did not go well for them. Saddam Hussein still had his elite forces after the war, so he cracked down very hard on the Kurds. And, and soon the world was witnessing, also by means of the press, who reported daily from the situation where about, I think, 1.5 million refugees were in such dire conditions in the mountains of bordering to Turkey and Iran. So um, there was a shock and a need felt widely in the international community to do something. And um, at least there was an indirect authorization of an intervention by the UN Security Council. We should remember that this was very difficult because there's been no real humanitarian intervention for many, many years. Some would say for almost a century. And the UN did not know how to go about this. But there was uh, an authorization of 
access to Iraq. And that authorization was used by a small coalition of states led by Western countries, but also su supported by, among others, Turkey, that launched a renewed intervention, this time into Iraq itself, to create a security zone where the Kurds could be safe. And actually, it was a success. The zone was created, I think, by means of 20,000 soldiers. And the Kurds came back down from the mountains and actually a sort of a province where the Kurds had some self-governance actually was built up, at times peaceful, at times they had their clashes. Uh, but I mean, uh, the, the Kurds, the Kurdish population was saved from this potentially huge catastrophe. Uh, and it became uh, widely, it, it was seen as a success. Also by those voices who had warned intensively against such an intervention, among them the, the Secretary General of the United Nations, Paris de Guelia, who had said that this was not within the Charter, it was not something provided for and agreed upon, so he thought it would be dangerous, and it could, it could set a dangerous precedent for a kind of intervention that could be abused later. But here he came out and said, this actually worked well, a very good result came out of it, and this is something that the UN must be able to do afterwards. Of course, Western voices like the French president and the British prime minister, the American president and Scandinavian countries, Europe at large, were happy about this, but also in the wider community, also in some third world countries and, and the big modernizing countries, there was some acceptance or even support of this new idea. But it did not go that well in, in many other cases. Uh, the next well-known case was the intervention in Somalia uh, to stop the hunger there. That actually succeeded in 1992-1993, but then later the whole civil war situation got out of control and the US chose to pull back their soldiers and today it's largely viewed as a failure because there was no reconstruction and no stable peace afterwards. So one early lesson was that to become a success, a humanitarian intervention must also succeed in the longer run, which it did not in Somalia. In Rwanda in 1994, it did also not succeed even in the short run, because here the world at large was bystanders to witness a, a full-blown genocide against the Tutsi population of Rwanda. And there was a paralyzed situation in the UN Security Council, and week by week went, nothing was done, while people were slaughtered in their thousands, tens of thousands, and then hundreds of thousands, before actually the UN Security Council got together and authorized a small African force to step in. But nobody was really willing to give them the necessary logistical support. So the Africans could not make it, although they really wanted to do it. And then finally, France stepped forward and offered to intervene, although, although France was well known for their support of those responsible for the genocide. But since nobody else wanted to help, France was sent in there, and also France actually tried to find people to save. 
but they only managed to save 10 to 15,000 people, while perhaps up to 800,000 were killed. So Rwanda is often looked upon as the great failure, along also for some Somalia to some extent. And most cases generally have had mixed results uh, all over the years since this president was set for humanitarian intervention in 1991 with the Kurdish refugee crisis. Um, what countries do you think are sort of leading or at the forefront of humanitarian intervention at the moment, if there are any at all? Yeah. First, we might continue a little bit with the historical perspective mm-hmm. because the situations I referred to were all in the 90s, the 1990s, where we had the so-called coming of the liberal world order. And there was a relative peace after the end of the Cold War. Of course, um, in these days, the West was in the driver's seat. So humanitarian intervention in the 90s, they were often led by the West. Or there was, uh, there were also some incidences with African involvement and leadership. Um, but in any case, although it was not solely a leadership and uh, an active participation by Western countries, that was the picture that dominated. And actually, we had more and more controversial situations uh, in the 90s, where some countries, including Russia and China, but also big global South or third world countries like India, became more and more critical towards the Western-led practice of humanitarian intervention. And the culmination of that was the intervention in Kosovo in 1999, which I think personally actually was a success because the Kosovo Albanians were expelled out of Kosovo in their masses, and many were killed also, and many villages were burned over a period of more than a year before a group of states intervened to stop this. It was uh, under Serb and Yugoslav leadership this was done. But Russia would not permit it to go through the UN Security Council. So a small group of Western states acting through NATO actually intervened anyway. So the intervention was a success because the atrocities and mass um, expelling of the population was stopped the people came back and started to build up a sort of a democracy uh, there. Um, uh, So I think it was a success in terms of the immediate purpose to save peoples being persecuted. But it was a failure because it did not obtain UN backing from the UN Security Council. And therefore, many saw it as an abuse of the UN Charter and the new consensus Uh, inside the UN Security Council and beyond, that humanitarian intervention could only be permitted by UN Security Council authorization. Otherwise, it was much too open for abuse, new imperialism, new colonialism, and all sort of national interests. So this was there. This was the moment where many states, especially outside the West, said, "We do no longer trust Western leadership of humanitarian intervention." So we came from a period with Western leadership of humanitarian intervention into a long period with no intervention at all, partly because uh, of the loss of legitimacy for this practice, partly because 
everything now was about the war on terror after 2001. So also the West itself seemed to lose interest in humanitarian intervention and was focusing only on the war on terror. Uh, so for a long period, there was no leadership at all. But then we had the comeback for re responsibility to protect and humanitarian intervention more narrowly with the intervention in Libya in 2011, the one in Cote d'Ivoire, also known as the Ivory Coast in 2011. Then serious problems with Syria, but was followed by interventions in Mali 2012-2013, which was to a large degree driven by humanitarian concerns, also in the UN Security Council mandate. So we actually had a number of cases within a very few years, and all of them had a mandate from the UN Security Council. Again, we saw leadership from Western countries, but not in particular the United States of America, uh, which was hit by the financial and economic crisis, had been exhausted over wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, and under, leaders, under the leadership of President Obama, had embarked upon a policy of non-interventionism, or the so-called leading from behind, or even offshore balancing. All keywords from a diminished US engagement into international interventionism, except where American interests were really at stake. So where did the leadership come from in these cases? Well, I think uh, among the usual suspects, France was still there, and France will always be there, because it's part of the self-understanding of France that France is the humanitarian great power, where the human rights originally were worked out, according to um, what Fran France often say about itself. Uh, and also this has been an area where France could continue to, to act as a great power and get acceptance as a great power, leading humanitarian interventions. So France is there, um, and they also persuaded the US, along with other countries, to help in the case of Libya in 2011, under the impression also of the Arab Spring. So uh, reluctantly, the US also helped there, uh, but Great Britain was also participating. What I think is more interesting is that some third world quarters, like ECOWAS, the West African organization, they came up with a strong leadership, regional ownership for this intervention in Cote d'Ivoire. In the case of Libya, the most advocate supporter outside the West was the Arab League and some of the Arab countries, which advocated intervention uh, uh, to the UN Security Council and offered to support it uh, with fighter planes, which they all, some of the countries did. So um, in the case of Libya, it was some Western countries in cooperation with the Arab League. In the case of Cote d'Ivoire, it was some Western countries, especially France, in cooperation again with the United Nations as such, and then here also ECOWAS, and uh, also some support from the African Union. Uh, and we saw the same picture in Mali, France providing the muscles, but also some military muscles coming from African countries, and all the important political support actually coming from African countries and African organizations. Because what seemed to be the case here was that without 
strong support from the region. Uh, also here, the third world regions or the global south regions, there could not really be acceptance uh, and enough support for such interventions. So I think the new picture, when we talk about the R2P and humanitarian intervention, that will be a much more complex situation where some Western countries will often be there with some countries coming from various regions around the world. So moving on to a more uh, recent uh, current issue, the crisis in Myanmar, could you explain the dilemmas that states face uh, when deciding how to react on uh, that crisis? Yes. Um, I think we should start here again with going back to colonialism and imperialism. And this part of Asia, and of course Asia in general, is a place where uh, the memory of colonialism is quite clear. Uh, and they, many places in Asia, there was a consensus that their newly won independence and the way they would go together regionally would be in another way, to have less great power dominance and to have less interventionism and try to get rid of all these old practices of imperialism, colonialism, interventionism, to build a regional society of states on non-intervention and respect of sovereignty and plenty of space for state building, even if that sometimes requires a use of force. Obviously, the use of force and the way the force was used in Myanmar to push out hundreds of thousands of Rohingyas was not necessary um, according to any standard uh, and I also think that there's not much support of that in the region but still it's happening in a region where there's no tradition for intervention so really humanitarian intervention is not expected to come up uh, as the first possible response here so um, what is a concern is how to get a, an international backing in the region for some kind of response that could effectively help this population, the Rohingya, except for the neighboring countries actually receiving them and treating them quite well to some extent. That, that it was apparently the best that the region could come up with. Uh, the same pattern we saw back in 2008, where there was a humanitarian crisis due to a cyclone uh, and where the government on Mu of Myanmar, the military junta, did not want to accept humanitarian relief from the international community. And also here, the com international community could not agree on imposing humanitarian assistance upon the country. Um, it's partly because of the fact that this is a non-interventionist region. It's also because of the fact that nothing can be done here without the acceptance and perhaps active leadership of China. And that leadership of China, to my knowledge, has not been forthcoming, not in a way that could lead to some kind of interference, threatening, pressuring, sanctioning the Myanmar government. Also, meanwhile, there will not be forthcoming, I think, any real sustained leadership from the United States of America. This is not the kind of thing that they want to do with their limited resources for the time being. And that is, I think, one principle that uh, Trump actually continues with, with after Obama, 
that the US will not intervene militarily or go close to that point. Because we should remember that if you start threatening a country as a great power, and then your threats do not help, then you have to consider, will I then move on to heavier threats and light use of force to save my reputation and credibility, um, and then finally end up in a military intervention once again? And of course, the US can see if they start threatening, but are not prepared to make good of their threats, it will only backfire on them. They can also see it will be very bad for their relations with China. So I think it's entirely out of the question that the US will come in here with sustained leadership without some Chinese openness. So it's up to some mild pressure from Europe, uh, I think France, um, and then maybe the Muslim part of the international community. But where should the great power leadership come from? It's very difficult to see, in my view. So um, wrapping up, what do you or what is your prediction um, of the future of humanitarian intervention and the responsibility to protect? Yeah, I think it'll be a mixed future. But firstly, we have had this as a quite sustained practice, primarily under the auspices of the United Nations since 1991. So, I mean, firstly, it's been there since around 1991. And secondly, it has uh, called much wider support than just inside the West. Also resistance, of course, uh, in some cases. But I don't recall having seen any key country coming out since 1991 to argue we will not tolerate this kind of principle or practice. We, we turn our back on the R2P or humanitarian intervention and we will, if we get the chance, say no every time it comes up. Neither Russia, China, India, Brazil, South Africa have said anything like this. There has been a lot of criticism momentarily and for good reasons of some cases or some developments, especially criticism directed against the West. For instance, after the example in Kosovo, which was actually worsened with the intervention in Iraq in 2003, which was not a humanitarian intervention, but was certainly a case of abuse of international law and therefore also had bad ramifications for the agreement of any kind of intervention, including humanitarian intervention. We have seen these setbacks. This one often is called the sunset of humanitarian intervention. But even in that period, the institutionalization of the R2P continued. Remember that in 2005, that was where the R2P principle, the responsibility to protect, was actually adopted in the UN General Assembly at the UN top meeting in 2005. So institutionalization continued under the so-called sunset of humanitarian intervention. There were a few light examples of R2P action. And then with the Arab Spring uh, came back a number of new examples of R2P action or even humanitarian intervention. So in spite of the non-action in Myanmar and the very terrible case of Syria, where the world was paralyzed, and great power and regional great power disagreement and disputes uh, destroyed all possibilities of agreement on something like a humanitarian intervention. In spite of these bad cases, we should remember that the general picture is one of 
continued acceptance, also by China actually, uh, or continued support of the principle as such that under the right situation, states at last will actually accept such uh, actions or interventions. And then once in a while, there will actually be a case where states come together ad hoc in the UN Security Council and beyond to agree on an intervention. And that will be once in a while, is my guess. Maybe there will be, like we saw it with the Arab Spring and further down in Africa, we saw some cases after 2011. There'll be a cluster of cases and then there'll be a pause, a break, and then it will come back again after some years. But it might be rare because the US will not take the leadership uh, for some years, is my guess. France and Britain and Europe may only do it occasionally and they will need then support of regional quarters, for instance, some African states and organizations, which is very important for the legitimacy of this and for uh, preventing the risk of abuse and the suspicion of Western motives, which is still there around international society. So it will be occasionally, and I think the standard case will be European and African leadership. But we've been surprised time and again so maybe there will be another case in the Middle East at some point, like what we saw to some extent in Northern Africa, in the Arab community, in Libya. Uh, and maybe China will, be, be, will become an important player because the general ambition of China is to take responsibility for UN activities, to become a great power inside the United Nations. And we saw China offer troops for the stabilization of Mali uh, on something that started as a humanitarian intervention and should then become a stabilization mission. And here China stepped forward, coming close to R2P action. So I have said for many years that one day China will come forward and be one of the participators, maybe even one day the leader of such an intervention. And um, that might also be still a possibility. Thank you so much. It was great talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you to uh, Tony Brams Knudsen for coming on our show and uh, enlightening us on a very, very interesting topic. This was all for uh, season one of our program. This wraps it up, but tune in to season two, which will be coming soon in 2018, where we have some more classy topics for you. Is that it? That's all we say, right? Do we need to see anything else or is it good? No. My name is Jens. My name is Kylie. Peace out.